You're listening to Crime World. Over Christmas, we're reposting some earlier episodes we made throughout the year. Psychopaths get incredibly bored. They have no reward structure. We have a reward structure with our child gives us a hug or a partner, you know, puts their arm around us or says they love us. To a psychopath, that, that means nothing. You know, to them, it's money, sex and power. It's how measures of the control they have over other people. And it was, it was psychological, literally psychological torture. It was horrendous. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She thought she had met the perfect man online. And when she married Will Jordan, she believed that all her dreams had come true. But for Mary Turner Thompson, there was no fairy tale. And a phone call from her husband's other wife ended her life as she knew it and set her on a brutal journey of discovery which unmasked Jordan as a bigamist, a con man and a sex offender. Fifteen years since those shocking discoveries, the famed author of the global bestseller The Bigamist tells me how it's become her life mission to protect other women from Jordan's charms. In her new book, The Psychopath, she delves deep into the minds of those who are born bad in an effort to understand how she became his prey. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I wanted you to tell me what's the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths because we sort of misuse those words and like I actually do most of my work around organised crime and I do come across quite a few what I would call psychopaths or sociopaths and I sort of, you know, don't really sometimes know what the difference is between them. And maybe in organised crime, they probably are more sociopaths. But you, you tell me what, what's the difference and, and what, what separates them. Both sociopath and psychopath are actually layman's terms. So the, the actual terminology is antisocial personality disorder. Um, so the psychopaths really are born and sociopaths are made. So a psychopath is born with no chemical empathic response to other people's pain. Um, which is basically there, there's two points the back, you know, above your ears towards the back of your brain. That if I sat here and I snapped my finger, I went crack right in front of you, you'd wince, your eyes would crinkle, you, you might even move your head back. And you actually, it's a, it's a physical chemical response in your brain that makes you feel pain when somebody else feels pain. It's like two hot needles going into your brain. Um, and psychopaths are born without that. Mary, I didn't wince. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't actually break my finger in front of you. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully. But, you know, if, if you saw somebody, if you saw a kid running on the street and you know, he, he tripped over and smacked his face on the pavement, you're liable to wince. Would you wince? I, no, I would. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm good. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that, is, that is the sort of chemical empathic response. So psychopaths are born without that. Okay. So they, they have capacity to be completely emotionless, um, you know, if, if not... It detected and dealt with and educated, um, they will turn into full-blown psychopaths, right? Uh, a sociopath, on the other hand, is born normal with emotion 
um, with chemical and pathic response, but usually through systematic abuse in the first five years of life are not taught empathy and therefore don't actually, that, that empathic response is dulled to the point then that it is non-existence. And it, the thing is that by 18, a psychopath and a sociopath are exactly the same thing. But it's just one is born, the other is made. Mm. Now, a psychopath presumably can learn how to react to that if if you uh, see a child fall and everybody else wins, as they can learn how to also wins, but they don't necessarily have to feel it. So they're probably a little bit more difficult to identify, are they? Yeah, well, I mean, both psychopaths and sociopaths will be effectively the same thing. But yeah, they will they will see everybody else's reaction and copy it. I mean, they're, they're actually, they're, there's some really interesting films where you watch somebody who's trying to demonstrate that they're a psychopath and that basically they look in the mirror and it fake, you know, sort of like make the facial expressions and practice the expressions they see other people making, you know, because they're not doing it because there's an emotion behind it. They're doing it because they're, they're practicing what it actually looks like. So they're very, very good at emulating it and very good at faking it to show it to other people. And the third major personality disorder would be, say, narcissism. So where, where where is that coming from? Is that somebody is born with it or is it a, a nature thing? Again, nature, I'm not overly familiar with narcissism. And remember, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm a layman who's done a lot of reading on the subject. Um, but, you know, narcissists, they are usually made and it's usually through um, childhood experiences. Um, you know, sort of, I, I I don't know enough to be able to go into detail about what, but I can tell you what the different, the, the sort of basic difference is between a, a psychopath and a narcissist is that, you know, psychopaths don't care about anybody. Uh, they don't even care about themselves, their future selves. So if you, if you strap an, a psychopath into an electric chair and say, we're going to give you an electric shock, the heart rate will remain stable throughout. They have the electric shock, the heart rate jumps up, it goes back to normal. You say, we're going to give you another electric shock, it stays steady because they don't care that their future self is going to experience pain. If you do that to a normal empathic person, you say you're going to experience pain, their heart rate starts to climb before the pain happens because they have an empathic response to their future self. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. So it's like, so psychopaths generally don't care about anyone, including themselves, whereas narcissists don't care about anybody except themselves. So narcissists, they are the center of their own universe. And everything else, you know, if their wives or their children are included and, you know, are worshiping them, then they're included in that center of the universe. They will protect them the same way they will themselves. If, however, their child or their partner steps out of their control, and does something they don't agree with. The guillotine comes down and they're gone. They never knew them, never liked them, never loved them. You know, as they will literally cut them off um, because they're no longer part of that central body that they love. And in a similar way, in rejection, a psychopath can just accept it and let it wash over them. A narcissist yeah. will probably, you know, do everything to, uh, you know, negate that Extract rejection. Revenge. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we can that, all that would, listen. Be a, that would be a malignant narcissist, yes. We can all think of a few people that are <laughs> popping to mind that, yeah, yes. but moving swiftly on. You said, Mary, that you, you aren't an expert. You mightn't have the letters after your name, but in, in my book, you've probably got a lot more expertise than most on what these personality disorders and, uh, you know, what psychopaths are. Um, And to kind of explain really why you are that expert, I think we need to go back a little Mm. bit to territory you're very familiar with. Um, 
You're the author of a book called The Bigamist, which was published, I think, in 2007. Um, it followed uh, six years of marriage that you had to a man called William Jordan, who it emerged had also got another wife and five other fiancés. You had two children with him. You fell head over heels in love with him and you had no idea that he was living double, triple, quadruple lives elsewhere. So we'll just sort of go back to that briefly. Um, Sure. you, You met Jordan in 2000. He was an American, is that right? That's right, yes. And you at the time were a single mum. You went on a dating website. You didn't do great with the few people you met. And I think you kind of took yourself off it, but he managed to find you online and contacted you. So tell me a little bit from there. Well, when he first contacted me, he wrote me this beautiful flowing letter about how he was an American and apologetic for it, that he was, he'd never had a family because he he was a, spent his life chasing his career around the globe. And the reason for that was because he was infertile from a bout of mumps as a child. Um, You know, so the fact that I already had a one-year-old daughter was really, you know, that that was a plus. Um, He was uh, calm, interesting, humble, um, intelligent, articulate. He'd read all the books I'd read. Uh, He liked the same sort of movies. He had the same sort of philosophy. We talked for about two weeks online uh, and then we met in person and soon as we met there was a such you know as sparks there was you know it, it was a click I think that's the best way of describing it. it's not so much spark it's click and it just everything seemed right everything sort of just fit um and he was incredibly romantic and and you know sent me a dozen red roses to my work sent me letters sent me texts you know he was he literally ticked every box that you want you, you see in all the rom-coms you know this this was you know the one this was the soulmate you know he just seemed to be absolutely perfect and obviously he was understanding about your, you know, I presume your priority was with your one-year-old child, I think, at the time. So he was able to stand back a little bit and let you have that time with your child and all that. Uh, now, he did say that he was working in intelligence and yes. security. Uh, yeah. Always a red say- flag for me, Mary, I have to say, <laughs> but I'm older than you were then. <laughs> The red flag it's not. <laughs> I know it's always so funny with the headlines. It's like people think he he came home and had said, "Hey, baby, I'm a spy." You know, it really wasn't like that. You know, he was. He, I knew he was already working in IT, uh, and basically, it was that one little step further than that. It wasn't. He wasn't a spy or anything else. He was. He worked in IT, but in the intelligence services. It was more like he was the guy in the van than he was the spy. <laughs> you know, and he was. It, it fit with what he was saying. Um, and when he told me about it, he didn't say, you know, you, you, he, he actually said, you don't have to believe anything I'm telling you. You don't have to believe any of it. It will all be proved in time. And, you know, so it wasn't so much a, I believed him immediately. I kind of just suspended my disbelief and kind of waited to see what evidence came in. Uh, and after that, there were phone calls from people. There were messages from people telling me that he, now I was included in the loop. You know, he, he I, they could tell me he was... Mo- he had to go away and can you know come to an event. Um, you know there were phone calls from people. There were he was paid in money packets because he was supposed to be on secondment to uh, the MOD. So he got money packets that were actually in in plastic pack bags that were stamped with MOD. Um, he used to carry a gun, um, which I never saw, but I felt through his jacket. Uh, gosh knows what that oh. was. <laughs> 
And they used to lock Red it away flag. when you came home. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it just probably a water pistol, who knows? Um, but, you know, it, just, it was just lots of little bits of evidence. So gradually, you know, that suspension of disbelief, I started to believe. It was a very kind of insipid thing. Um, and, you know, when he first told me that he worked for the intelligence services, I kind of went, aye, aye, right, you know. But that was the, you know, but, you know, it will, the evidence will come. So it was that kind of holding on to it, if that makes sense. You were just holding on and waiting to, to see what actually happened. And in the process of that waiting was more sucked into the story. Now you, um, I've seen you've been interviewed a few times and you've very rightly pointed out that, you know, you're trying to race through uh, telling what ha- actually happened when you're doing interviews. You did write a book with probably 100,000 words in it, which probably explains it better. It is difficult to yeah. to try and give a concise overview of something like that, which is a very complex relationship, obviously, that developed. And I'm sure there was many things that were backed up. What I did notice um, you saying before, and I did want to ask you myself, was a few people came on the phone to you over the time that you were in this relationship with them. And, sorry, marriage. And you had two children, as I said. Like, his parents came on the phone to you. And... People he worked with, he supposedly worked with, were they real people that were friends of his? And are, are were they him kind of pretending to be? <laughs> not, not, not all of them were him. I think some of them might have been him. Uh, certainly the parents weren't because it was uh, he was with me in the room when yeah. they called. Um, and actually I've, I've found out since that his parents have done that numerous times with other people. Um, so they rang me to congratulate me on having their first grandchild, having spent Christmas with his other wife and the five children that they had together. They had spent uh, Christmas with the other wife and the five children, yeah. and they rang you to congratulate you. And on their obviously, first grandchild, yes. On the first, and obviously, my goodness. Um, so that's so a yeah, whole other parents, story, parents, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so some people were complicit, basically. Mm. So, so his parents were complicit. They were helping him. And we know that now um, for, for which comes into the second book, there, mm. there were other people that they were helping set up. Um, the, the But there could have been some people, you know, for instance, when he would ring me to say, you know, uh, or someone would ring me to say, you know, he can't come to a certain event, he's been called away. Uh, so he'd be called away at the drop of a hat, but at least now I would be told about it. So it could be some random person in the street that he would stop and say, listen, I'm, I'm going to buy a, a present for my wife, um, but she's expecting me home. Could you possibly just, you know, phone this number and, and tell her that I've been called away and I'll, you know, I'll get in touch soon. And then I would get a phone call saying, just to let you know, Will Jordan's been called away, you know, et cetera. It could have been anyone. You know, mm. it's like he, he, what the evidence that was to me was because he'd set it up as this will be people calling you from MOD or the CIA, or whatever, to tell you now that you're included in the story. So it's like, but they, the, the stranger in the street doesn't know that. They're just making the phone call. Was he ever in the room with you when these people rang? Uh, well, it was certainly when the parents rang, yes. Um, but, you know, the, I mean, it could well have been other people, but he's he's actually very good at accents. Um, I actually once, for a laugh, I once saw him um, pretend to be a gay hairdresser all night at a party once. And he did it spot on the whole night, didn't waver at all. It was very funny, actually. But. Now, you had two small children, so clearly you were busy with that. He was away. Your your husband, who you believe to be just your husband, was away a lot working for probably months on end. 
were the paychecks coming in um or was oh, there initially yes oh yeah right. initially i mean the the by 2000 so we we met in 2000 we got engaged we got married in 2002 um and you know by 2004 he was trying to get out of the um cia he wanted to just work so he he'd got a job working for a large software company um and he was as a consultant so as an it consultant and he was getting 10,000 pounds a month from them um, and that went on for about six months. I mean, we had, you know, for, for quite a while, we had sort of a, a nice lifestyle. Um, and it was then, you know, it was in 2004 that, you know, he said somebody had found out who he really was, um, that somebody, under, uh, an undercover operation he'd done before, um, had discovered, you know, his new real identity, I suppose his undercover one. And um, that because he was working for this company, not not under the intelligence services, under his real name, they'd actually found out where his wife and family lived and they were threatening to kidnap the kids and rip bits off them and send them through the post to us unless we came up with money. So we were, you know, being blackmailed effectively. And that was like a shark freeding frenzy. You know, I'd sold my flat, so I had some capital in the bank and that just went in about five or six months. Just, it was 5,000 here, 10,000 there. Um, and I was just giving the money to him and he was giving it to them supposedly. Um, and uh, it just went on and on until I had nothing left. It was about £198,000 he took. So. And you were living in terror, obviously, as well, with these threats on your children. Um, it was far worse than the money, actually. It's psychological torture. I spent every night I would hear a noise in the house, and he issued me a taser, um, so that it was just highly illegal. Um, and uh, But, you know, I thought it was issued by you know, uh, authorities. Um, and I would go around the house every night with this taser in my hand, expecting to see, you know, hooded men around the corner, you know, trying to kidnap my kids. So I didn't sleep. And it's, it, there's a lot to be said about that. Sleep deprivation is a massive element of it because you can't think straight. You can't, you can't rationalise. I couldn't talk to anyone about it because anyone I talked to, I'd be putting in danger. Um, so I was totally isolated. Although I had close family and friends, I couldn't talk to them. So... I was isolated from them. And it was it was psychological, literally psychological torture. It was horrendous. And all this time, Mary, you were living in Scotland, is that right? Mm-hmm. In Edinburgh, yes. In Edinburgh. And uh, he was over and back to the States, I presume, on these work assignments. No, I, he was he was mostly around Britain. Uh, okay. I think he I think he did go back to the states at one point, but um, I wasn't aware of that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Two thousand and six, you got a phone call which changed your life, and it was from his other wife who had uh, managed to work out what was happening through a fraud investigation uh, involving yet another woman. And um, it's slightly complex, but actually maybe you can explain it briefly because I think it's important in the story how you you kind of all realised what was happening. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, he had a, um, a fiancé uh, and she had been doing some work for him. Uh, He'd been taking her salary as well as borrowing money from her. Um, And he'd asked her if if she could pay for his car repair. So she finally noticed that there was more money going missing on her credit card than she had anticipated and realised it was him doing it. So she set up a police sting at the mechanics. So when he turned up to pick up the car, the police were waiting. 
in a police sting. And they searched the car and they they found in the car his um, wedding certificate and some, you know, papers, etc. pertaining to the other wife and the taser, which uh, he'd taken out of the house uh, because I'd had to move into my parents' house by that stage. Um, and um, it, so they rang me because I was the owner of the car and said, where's your car? And I said, my husband's driving it. So the police charged him with bigamy and with fraud and with firearms because of the taser. Uh, and uh, also it turned out when they did a search that he was a convicted paedophile, and so they charged him with uh, not registering his address and the Sex Offenders Act as well. And the paedophilia conviction was back in the States, was it? No, that was in the UK in 1997. So because it was 2006 at the time, he'd had to register his address for 10 years, and he hadn't hadn't uh, decided to uh, comply with that legal nicety. It goes without saying that the shock must have been absolutely horrendous, and I'm sure it took you quite some time to dust yourself down and, you know, you're left with two young children. You've realised you've been... Three. Three young... I sorry, my, you had my one-year-old own, daughter, had two to him as well. So, so there were seven, four and one yeah. at the time. Three children, you'd lost your home because you had sold up and you had debts as well because you'd run up some credit card debt. Um, and I'm sure you felt a bit silly as well that you had fallen for it. Look, there's just no doubt about that. But when you did dust yourself down, I think that you really sort of became empowered because even in the victim impact statement for the court case, you managed to, through your victim impact statement and through the investigations you'd done into his background, you managed to get him a very severe sentence for that particular crime. Yeah. Uh, I mean, initially, I was told by the uh, prosecution service that that he was likely to get a slap on the wrist for all of it because he was saying that the fraud was a mistake, that the the fiancé had found out he was married and was doing it to be vindictive, that he she had said he could use the card. He'd said that the bigamy, he'd married me because I would I was pregnant and therefore, you know, he felt that he really had to do it. Um, and the taser, because he was American, didn't realise he couldn't have it. You know, he, he'd isolated all the crimes and tried to come up with a reason for it. So the prosecution said that they thought he'd get a slap on the wrist. So what I did with the victim impact statement is I tied all the crimes together. By the time it came, it was about six months later. And by that time, I'd done a lot of research and found some other victims as well. So I was able to say, I think this man is a psychopath. And uh, this is the reasons why. And he's been doing this for, for many, many years. Um, so don't don't let him off with a slap wrist. Yeah, and his excuses didn't didn't uh, curry favour at that point because you were able to show that he had a history of this and he'd done it to a lot of women. Um, probably that victim impact statement is what set you on your path. You you wrote your book, The Bigamist, which was an enormous success, um, and you went public with your story, and you travelled across the world, really, Mary, telling that story and you tell it very well. Um, Thank you. And it brings you on maybe to a new chapter in your life, which is um, that journey, telling that story, you know, first of all, telling the nuts and bolts of what happened, which we've only really brushed upon today. But um, I think that telling that story then brought you into a different arena where you started wondering how it happened to you and what was wrong with him. I noticed you, you did an interview with John Ronson. <laughs> you, you, know, you know that he wrote the he wrote the psychopath test because he met me. 
Because he met actually, you. Oh. Yeah, he's actually, he's very kindly. If you if you Google my name and his together, you'll see that sort of in, in, in interviews, he's actually said, the reason I wrote The Psychopath Test is because I met Mary Turner Thompson. And anybody who hasn't read it should, even though we're not yeah. here today to, to promote. <laughs> Thoroughly recommend book. it. Yes, it's, it's a great yours. book. But um, yeah, and it took you to, um, you know, you started really to, to do what you call your layman study of... Uh, psychopaths um, and you started with sort of being interviewed by various people because you were so open about your story and so articulate about your story people started interviewing you and then you started realizing that you had something to learn too um, you stumbled upon the the famous psychopath test by Robert O'Hare Dr. Robert O'Hare which is still used today uh, it's been around a long time um, was that a bit of an eye opener for you? And maybe tell us a little bit about that for anyone who doesn't know. Oh yes, it's, it's, yeah, it's Dr. Robert Hare. He's um, yeah, it's a twenty point psychopath checklist, and it's used in psychiatric facilities, particularly criminal psychiatric facilities, to ascertain whether somebody is a psychopath. So the questions are, I mean, there's twenty questions, and they're just statements. And you score it either zero, one, or two. So zero is not at all. So one of the statements, for instance, is pathological lying. So uh, you'd sort of say, does this person pathologically lie? Zero, not at all. One, maybe a little bit. And two, definitely. Um, So there's things like grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, criminal versatility, many marital relationships, sexual promiscuity, juvenile delinquency. There's just that kind of list. Um, And I actually sort of went through this as a layman, um, with what I now knew about Will Jordan. And actually, all the way through, it was quite easy to say two, 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 two. And he actually scores 40 out of 40, in my opinion. Actually, it was, you know, but I'm, it has to be administered by a psychologist. And actually, it has been used, my, my book, The Bigamist, has been used in studies in the USA, in psychology uh, studies particularly. Um, and the psychologists who have ever looked at Will Jordan have all agreed with me that he would score 40 out of 40. So he is one of the most prolific psychopaths that there are, that there can be. All the while you were learning about him and probably learning about yourself as his victim, um, he was released from prison in 2009. He went straight to the to the US where you kind of followed after him, didn't you? You, you, you <laughs> alerted them. You, you alerted the authorities there. I bet you sorry he oh, ever I met you. Oh, I tried to, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the trouble is because he's a convicted paedophile uh, and a sex offender, the, the American authorities have this rule called Megan's Law. Uh, and it means that anybody who's been convicted of a sexual offence has to register online as a sex offender so that people in the neighbourhood can see if there's a sex offender when they're moving into the neighbourhood, etc. Um, and when I contacted the New Jersey police and said, look, I'll just let you know that he's there, he should be on the register, um, they, they actually said, no, 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 because it's only American offenders, not, not British ones, actually turned out that they were incorrect because the law had changed in 2008 before he was deported, saying that sex offenders from Britain, Australia and Canada should also be included if they moved into the States. So um, so he slipped through this little crack uh, and we're still, to this day, trying to get him on Megan's Law Register because he actively targets single mothers. So he is he is a predator and it's dangerous and... You know, I feel like I feel like I've done everything I can 
Um, you know, I've been right up to the Secretary of State of Britain saying, please, can you send the records to the <laughs> police in America? But the police in America have to actually request them. So, you know, there's really not much else we can do. But um, I have to feel I have to feel like I've done everything I can to protect future victims so that, you know, when people do come forward and they do regularly come forward and say, I've just found out I'm a victim of the same man, you know, we, we can hold our heads up and say, look, we honestly, we've tried everything we can to make sure that, you know, we stop this guy from hurting people. But, yeah, there's only so much we can do. He immediately got back to to exactly what he does. And, um, you know, shortly after his release, he had focused in on, I think, a single mother again and she had got pregnant uh, was expecting his child before she realized who she was dealing with he then moved to Mexico where another woman fell victim to him and you know all the while you were sort of uh, doing your interviews informing the people with the letters after their names um, of your own experience which was helping them with their studies and all the while these victims were coming forward to you kind of nearly on a on an annual basis, really. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was there was four in the first year. Um, and I, I, you can imagine that it's, it's not everybody, you know, when they find out who he is, will be in touch with me. So it won't be, this will be the kind of tip of the iceberg, the ones that just really need to reach out for support. So we're four in the first year. And then there was nothing for three years. It just, he, he went absolutely silent. And he started using pseudonyms. Uh, and then in 2013, sorry, I got uh, a, a call from the lovely Michelle, who's very happy for her name to be used, I should add. It's Michelle Lewis. Yes. And she she and I sort of have become since then the kind of two pillars across the Atlantic. Um, and, you know, she she is very like me, very happy to talk out, very happy to talk on interview. Uh, she's actually writing her own book as well. Um, but she she's just been incredible and an incredible support as well. But she got him arrested. She actually, we set her up with hidden cameras and she actually filmed him and recorded him telling, you know, all the stories, which we've actually managed to, uh, in my book, I've managed to actually analyse the language and stuff that, that he uses and the techniques he uses as well, which is, is really brilliant to be able to do that. I was reading that with interest in your book, The, the Psychopath, which is, it is being released at the moment, that book, the yeah. second book. And I think The Bigamist is being re-released as well at the same time. So yeah. anybody interested? Yeah, can... so they're both available now, yeah. And they kind of go hand in hand. I think you probably wouldn't be reading one without the other, um, I have to say, or certainly it, it, it makes it more of a, you know, yeah. it's a much more in-depth look into, into the story and into him. Um, I, think, I think the idea is that you can read either or mm, both mm-hmm. and you can read them in either order, but I think the better way to do it is the bigamist first and then the psychopath. I think that sort of gives you a bit more You're, um, you're getting more the facts and then the, in, yeah. the in-depth um, study into it. So... How do you know he's a psychopath and not a sociopath? Um, because of his the childhood, the because of the things that I found out about him as a child. Mm. Um, certainly he had a sister and an adopted sister who don't seem to have the same condition. Um, that, you know, generally a sociopath is, um, because it's abuse for the first five years, if you've got parents that are abusive to one child, they're usually abusive to the others as well. So it is, you know, that they're, they're, that's more likely. I do think his parents are, you know, possibly that his father was a psychopath and his mother was an apath. Um, so, you know, that, which is why they're kind of complicit and quite happy to help him set up people. So tell me a little bit about his background, his childhood and that, and his, mm-hmm. or his early life. 
I don't know a lot about it, to be honest. I know that um, when he was 10, he was accused of um, molesting um, a girl a year, year or two younger than him, um, sexually molesting. Um, and the girl wasn't believed. He was, he was, you know, he he was the it seemed to be the innocent party. But with hindsight, looking back now, you know, it seems likely that that was true. Um, he tended to keep himself to himself. Um, we know that he had a, his first girlfriend uh, around about thirteen, and he was with her for a few years. Um, that he, you know, he he was he seemed like a relatively normal kid, um, but with very few friends and a little bit kind of standoffish, I guess. Um, but that's about all we know. We'd love to know more, actually. So if anybody ever, <laughs> anybody knew him as a kid, we'd love to, loved him to come forward. And what about school and college and that? Uh, he didn't do college. He went to jail in 2000, no, he went to jail when he was 18 uh, for check fraud. Uh, when he came out, he took his girlfriend up to Canada. Um, they did some work up in Canada. He then got arrested again for, I think it was impersonating a police officer and carrying throwing stars. Um, so he did time up there. She was already pregnant, so she went back and down to New Jersey. I think she was actually deported um, back to New Jersey. And um, when he didn't, she didn't see him again for five years. When her son was five years old, um, by which time he was married to uh, an older lady and having an affair with the woman who became his wife in the UK. Um, so you know, there's sort of like we have this kind of patchwork of knowledge from the, the different victims. So there's gaps in the years we know of um but i have no doubt that that you know, that those gaps will be filled you know as as people find out about it they sort of contact me and say gosh and i i knew this i knew this guy i used to live on their street i used to know their whole family they seemed you know quite nice so you're sort of you're <laughs> ma- you're making a jigsaw really mary all the time yeah. with with the bits of information how many years was he in the uk before he targeted you which is what he did well, he arrived in the UK around about, I think it was 1992. Uh, and I met him in 2000. And in the meantime, he went to jail for seven months of a 15-month sentence for the sex offences against a girl under the age of 13. So he's nearly a decade in the UK before he, he targeted you. Um, like, hindsight's a great thing and everything. And I'm sure you don't recognise, isn't, isn't it? My <laughs> God, if you could bottle it. I mean, I'm sure you don't hardly recognise the person that fell in love with him and, uh, you know. Uh, um, yeah, I, I do, do. It's like, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, you must have felt foolish or you must have felt silly, I think you said. Um, and I think the thing is, I I looked at it and sort of like, I, I wasn't, I didn't feel silly or foolish or anything else. I, I think the first thing I felt was relief by the fact that actually all these shadowy people that were after me and my children didn't exist. Um, so that was the first sort of major thing. Um, the second one was um, that, you know, just... I do have a little bit of kind of uh, sort of looking back at my, and feeling, you know, that I was naive. I was uneducated in the sense that I didn't think people like this existed. Um, I really shy away from saying somebody is made, made a fool of or was silly or anything else because there are so many other victims out there who are still in the same situation, who stay in the situation because they don't want to admit they've been made a fool of, um, instead of actually sort of being able to stand up and hold their head up high. Does that make sense? Um, and yes, there, you know, that's, that's a societal perception that if you've been conned, you must be a bit foolish or a bit silly, you know, because you shouldn't really have believed someone loved you. You know, you shouldn't really have believed someone, you know. And it's, it's, it is just... It, 
I do understand that, yeah, you do feel like you've been made a fool of, but it's just that kind of language and that terminology. It's like saying to a rape victim, do you really think you should have walked out wearing that short skirt? You know, it's putting the blame on the victim instead of actually putting the blame on the on the perpetrator. And of course, professional fraudsters are that way because they're bloody good. good at it. I mean, that's yeah. the point. And I mean, he is somebody who, while I know that you have statistics there that show that one in every hundred people are psychopaths that you meet, he seems to have been prolific to the extent that he couldn't be in the one in every hundred, right? So you have met somebody in life who is, you know, who shines at that, at what they do. Yeah. So, you know, that yeah. that definitely has to be yeah. accepted. But do, what, what sort do you know, of... Do you know why? Do you know why psychopaths are, are so charming? You know, this is they're, they're not just naturally charming, right? But if, if a psychopath goes, if a normal person goes into a bar and tries to chat somebody up and the, the person they're chatting up says, get lost, right? They'll feel upset they'll feel rejected they'll probably go home probably won't actually talk to try and chat anyone up for another week if not a month or a year or 10 years or something right because their feelings are hurt right and it takes a lot of guts to actually build up the courage to go up to somebody and say hey I like you you know whereas a psychopath will walk up to somebody and say you know I like you and they'll go get lost they'll immediately go to the next person because there's no emotional turmoil for them there's no rejection there's no hurt so they can go through 100 people a night and then the same the next night, and the same the next night. And over a period of time, they learn exactly how to approach every individual type of person. You know, they're gathering that information all the time. They're unencumbered by the emotions that stop them from um, from looking from their own point of view. They're always looking for, for those signals from other people. So they're chameleons. They're really good at, at, at approaching every single type of person, whether they're boisterous, whether they're happy, whether they're low, sad, quiet, no, etc. You know, sort of like so that that's why they become so charming. It's because they're actually practiced at it. And from a dating uh, website point of view, presumably you have to put up. Uh, you know, I know they've changed since the year two thousand, yeah. but you do have to put up presumably elements about yourself, what what you like doing, what sort of a personality you are, and they will garner a huge amount of information about you from that and then they will manipulate themselves to be probably an ideal partner or somebody who ticks your boxes. Yep, exactly that. Exactly. Mm. I'm, I must have met one somewhere along the line, did I? Oh, I think you might but, have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just going back to the, I suppose, the, 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 um, the things psychopaths do that, you know, make them stand out from a regular mm. person. Um, and your book, The Psychopath, is all about this and the sort of things to look out for and the sort of things that were used against you and, and you discuss how you felt at the particular time. But some of the things they do is they'll, they'll groom victims. Mm-hmm. Um, they will love bomb people. And they'll use a thing called gaslighting, which um, sometimes it nowadays comes up in criminal trials. We hear that word. Um, yeah. So what is that and, and how is that used maybe on on yourself? It's, a, it's actually came, it came from a film called Gaslight in, uh, I think it was 1943 it came out, which is a film about a man who tries to make his wife think she's going insane. 
Um, and it, because he goes into the attic and is searching for something, I can't even remember what, but the gas lights turn down in the main house when she's there and her husband's out. Uh, and he, he makes her think that she's just going nuts or, or the house is haunted or something. Um, and that's where the terminology comes from. But basically, it is making your partner think that they are losing their mind, that they're wrong, that they're the ones that they're the ones that have fault. Um, you know, so the term itself actually is a sort of a, a form of mind control, but it's a very abusive one where it's making someone feel that that everything is is wrong with them. And it's like moving keys around when you think you've put them down in a particular place to be hidden and. Yeah, it can yeah. be that. It can be all sorts of things. I think it's one of the examples I I use, which is it, it's it's still annoys me, and it's such a tiny thing, but it, it's it still bugs me. I think it's because my children are involved in this. But um, once the will will turned around and said, um, "Could I pick him up from work?" So I said, "Sure, yeah, great." It was I was really pleased that he was home or, or something, and so I jumped in the car with my six month old baby, my three year old daughter, and we we jumped in the car and went to Tandra Street and sat there waiting for him. You know, I texted him saying I've arrived. You know, and he texted me back saying I'm on my way down. And ten minutes went by and um, nothing happened. So I texted him again and said, "You know." where are you? And he said, oh, sorry, I was just, just leaving now. Um, and then another few minutes go by and I'm texting him saying, we're still waiting. And he said, oh, I'm on the stairs. You know, someone's just asked me to do something. It won't be long. You know, so 15 minutes go by and then I get another text saying, you know, I've just finished doing it. I'm on my way. And this went on and on and on for two hours. I sat there in the car trying to entertain a three-year-old. Luckily, the baby was asleep. But, you know, and the, the bit, and my three-year-old wanted to go to the loo, all this kind of jazz. And, you know, eventually he just stopped answering. So I just finally drove home, went home. I found out after I started talking to the other wife, he wasn't even in Edinburgh. He wasn't even in Edinburgh. He was in Manchester at the time. He just wanted to see how long he could make me wait. And did that not end up in the biggest row ever when you eventually did answer the phone to you? No, because the, the first of all, uh, yes, I was furious and I was still texting and saying, where the heck are you? But, you know, I would get an answer basically saying that he was called away on assignment and he's not allowed to tell me when that happens, you know. So, you know, this this was why the intelligence service bit was such a good ruse mm-hmm. um, because, it, you know, meant that, you know, something happens, he had to drop everything and go and couldn't tell me. It was all secret. So, you know, yeah. it was like complaining, it was like complaining that Superman hadn't, hadn't come back from dinner, you know. He was doing things that were, you know, off saving the world kind of thing, you know. So me complaining about having to sit in a car comfortably for a couple of hours was really, seemed so petty. Uh, and that in itself is gaslighting because it's making, you know, it's it's changing those rules around, you know, it's it's torturing somebody and making them apologise for it. And it's easy to probably gaslight um, somebody with three young children. Um, <laughs> and you who's sleep deprived, yes. Absolutely. But that brings me on just... Um, his motivation then is to torture you or his motivation is money? No, the, the, the motivation is control. The motivation is to see what he can make people do. Have you ever seen a game called Sims? No. Right? It's, it's a computer game where okay. you have a, a house and you can have the, different people and you make the people do things. You can make them get pregnant. You can make them have babies. You can make them go to work. You know, it's just controlling these people and making them... That's all the game is. And my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter, loves it. She thinks it's brilliant. Um, but that's exactly what life is like to a psychopath. They're just seeing, what can I make this person do? 
Um, I mean, there's some very, very worrying things that, you know, one of one of the cases in America, one one of the girls, um, I think he was trying to make her commit suicide. Um, you know, that sort of thing. How far can I make them go? You know, the, the money he took from me, I don't think was, um, it was, I don't think he was really interested in the money. I think it was how, how much can I get her to give me? You know, the psychopaths get incredibly bored. They have no reward structure. We have a reward structure with our child gives us a hug or a partner, you know, puts their arm around us or says they love us. You know, this is, this is a reward structure for us, for, for normal empathic people. To a psychopath, that, that means nothing. You know, to them, it's money, sex and power. It's how measures of the control they have over other people. So in my case, I think the money was really a measure of the control he had. You know, in other in other cases with women who who didn't, I mean, I didn't have a lot of money. I'm not I'm not that rich. It was from the sale of a house, etc. Left with nothing. It's amazing how much you can raise when you have to. There's your children at risk. Um, but with other people, it wasn't. With other people, it was. You know, what would they accept sexually, or what would they? You know, how far could he push them? You know, in getting um, people to you know sort of take on take other partners into their bed and allow him to film them. You know, it depended on the person, you know, and how far he thought they could be, he could push them. Most of us would wonder how he had so much time on his hands and how he had time to do it all. But I suppose if you're... <laughs> That's because he was doing contracts for likes of the software company and actually not doing any work at all, just charging them. You know, so all the jobs he was doing, he wasn't actually doing it. It took him about six months for them to realise because it's IT coding. You know, it took them about six months to realise nothing was appearing. So although he was getting paid for doing work, he actually wasn't doing any work at all. He was just going from one relationship to another. And he was he time. was screwing with the employers as well as everybody else. Oh, yes. Um, oh, he, rip, he ripped um, businessmen off for millions. You know, sort of like the it wasn't just love fraud he was doing. Mm. It was, you know, it was uh, business fraud. You know, he ripped off so many companies. There's, there's one businessman who I'm still in contact with occasionally who, who would rip his head off if he had a chance, you know, um, for, for many, many reasons. But yes, it's uh, he, he, he's left a trail of destruction in his wake. And finally, Mary, I just, I've spoken to um, quite a few people over the years who maybe have been victims of abuse. Some of them have been victims of child sex abuse. And they would always say to me that they can tell an abuser the minute they lay eyes on them nearly. It's given them this incredible knowledge. Um, do you recognise psychopaths when you meet them now? I, I think so. Um, the really good ones, you wouldn't. The really good ones, you would never tell. And they probably will never get caught. You know, so, if, I mean, the, the, as you say, the statistics are 1% of society, but it, it's about 4% of CEOs and 25% of the prison population. So not all psychopaths are good at what they do. You know, it depends on how intelligent they are, how adept they are, their, you know, their different abilities. But, uh, yeah, generally, I've, I've come across quite a few people and I've just, they've, they've just said something random and I've kind of gone, mm, nah. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to be scared of them. If you can identify them, you can go, mm-hmm, yes, I think, you know, I'll just keep, keep this one at an arm's distance. Um, In so, other yeah. words, you're you're seeing those red flags, maybe that the twenty year ago you didn't see, and and yeah. nowadays you it's can one just it's see one of the reasons why I included the language patterns in the the psychopath, um, because that that is more than anything else I think what identifies them. This is what you call the word salad. Well, yeah, there's word salad projection. You know, there's all sorts of things, but yeah, word salad particularly if you ask somebody a question, and you they start talking and they. They don't quite finish. 
they go from one thing to another and suddenly you're talking about the weather. You know, it's I'm trying to do it to you. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. But basically what happens if you care about somebody and they're doing that word salad, what happens is you try and help them out. As an empathic person, you kind of give them the answer. You finish the sentence for them finally because you're so frustrated they haven't actually done it. And as a result, you've just given them the answer you'll accept. So it's a very, very clever technique. But when you know it's happening... You can just sit back and watch and see where they go. It's really, I know, it's quite funny. <laughs> and projection, obviously, is when you maybe accuse them of something which is true. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the whole thing comes back on you. It's like looking in a mirror oh, and it comes yes. back at you. And then you, you've been accused of exactly the same thing. Yeah, if you think your partner's um, flirted with someone else, you know, by the time you get home and you're sort of starting to say you were flirting with that person, you will find you are now being accused of having an affair. You know, it's just completely flipped around on you and you're kind of going, where did that come from? How did that happen? And again, these are all gaslighting techniques. So, um, but I think the more we discuss them, the more we open up to it, the more we allow people to talk about it, the more we'll start recognising more language patterns as well. Um, and, you know, if we can if we can identify them, that hopefully will keep us safe. I'm sure the uh, psychopaths will equally come up with new techniques all the time, which we're just going to have to be aware of. So the real key is to know, A, that they're out there um, and, you know, sort of be, be able to identify it and, and, you know, as I say, not be as naive as I was and thinking that all people were nice. Cross the road, Mary, cross the road. <laughs> Mary Turner Thompson, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. From Sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page. Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>